As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Road Rage Bedraggled Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. So while you're listening to this, through the magic of technology, I am probably still in northern Ontario. The magic of time travel. Yes. I've been informed that the voyage cross-country is a magical affair, which I think is an exaggeration, but everyone has stressed that Ontario does not ever end. Well, you see, you go wait till you get to like Saskatchewan and and you're other, trying to remember the other prairie those province, other, those other places, Alberta, Manitoba, Manitoba, yeah, 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 you know that that flat airport that you're going to be driving across. I met I a think, guy from Manitoba once. I he think, said, "Manitoba, come for the wheat." I think magical. They mean by they're going to, people get really high in order to make it across. <laughs> uh, that is not what I'm going to be doing. Rest assured. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to be deviating slightly from the normal formula by virtue of the straightened circumstances. So we're going to talk about the games we played last week, a brief element on the news and why it doesn't matter. Our topic this week is part one of two of our semi-regular omnibus Ask Me Anything Catch-All Questions period. And those of you who are looking forward to our award-winning segment, So Very Wrong About Games presents Masterpiece Theater, you're going to have to wait. But on the other hand... There's, there is no other hand. I don't know what that segue was for. So, with that in mind, let us proceed to the games we played last week. It would have been good if it was like a card game. You could segue. On the other hand, we played, you know, like a hand of cards. You know, Walker, that, that, would have been, that's why you're the best in the business right there. right there. That would have been a solid. On the other hand. On the other hand. On the other hand. Mark, you played Regicide on Tabletop Simulator. Woo! Nailed it. Thank you. Way to, way to pull us back <laughs> from the fires of my own incompetence. Yes, Regicide is really fun and really good. I've been saying this all over. It is now, as I said, a regu- it is not even part of my gaming bag. It's now in my purse walker. I just keep Regicide in my purse that I carry with me all over the place. And the moment there was a tabletop simulator, I knew I had to in- introduce it to Louie because we play games with Louie regularly online. And the best part is, now when you mouse over a card, it tells you what the name of the character is. No way. Seriously. Because during the Kickstarter campaign, they named all of the characters in the 52-card deck. Once again, Regicide is the cooperative game that is based on a standard 52-card deck, 
but the artwork is so incredibly compelling, and now all these characters have names, because the amount of personality that leaps off a given card, if you want to pay attention, you don't have to pay attention. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm playing a native spades. Or you could pay attention to the fact that all the eights across all the suits have different character designs, and all the spades look heavily armored, etc., etc., etc. Still haven't won, still haven't come close to winning. We had an excellent session where we got to the penultimate king, which is as far as we got, uh, and then we were roundly trounced. But it's so simple to explain, so fun to play, not heavy on the cooperation. I mean, I understand why it works that way. You can't tell people what's in your hand. The communication restrictions, if strict, are at least sensible. They're not like, well, you can say something about your cards, just not exactly what they are. And then you have to start parsing, do you have a good spade or do you have a really good spade? Anyway, you just can't talk about it. But still, it's fun and social. You get to marvel at the artwork together. Honestly, this is one of the most surprising finds over the past few years. Regicide has continued to grow and grow. And in terms of full disclosure, this is a review copy we did get from the designer. That being said, if you find it too hard, that could be like an easy rule to break until you until you start winning and then to make it harder then remove the 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 chit chat funny you mentioned that that is an actual variant for beginners you can have table talk if you want as an easier experience but i but look you and i both appreciate very hard co-ops i think you appreciate them far more than i do i don't mind co-ops that are too easy qv the fact that i played spirit island on difficulty level zero dozens and dozens of times but i do appreciate the fact that it is unrelentingly brutal and so that's Regicide, my highest possible recommendation. That being said, we're playing it so often now. I'm wondering if we're finding that it's an obvious play when it's your hand. Like, are you really thinking a turn ahead? Like, I'm going to save these cards yes. for my next play. Absolutely. All right. Well, at the begin, so the, at the beginning I, of the game. At the beginning, for sure. At the beginning of the game, every suit feels like a waste. Because so few of the special abilities seem to make sense at the very early on. And so there's tension in, in, in how to manage your hand in that sense. Later on over the course of the game, you start looking at your higher value cards, but then wondering, well, just in terms of our game last night, we were in a position where we desperately needed more card draw, but we'd been sloppy with respect to using hearts because hearts are what you use to buff up the draw deck and it doesn't feel as satisfying as any of the special abilities. Every time... I play a card, I always wanted to have all four special abilities of the suits. Now, if it's the case that you can kill a boss by the exact margin necessary, and in Regicide what that does is it adds the boss to the deck rather than discarding it out of the game, yeah, sure, it's, it's a gimme. Go ahead and do that. But short of that, I find the card play constantly tense. That was Regicide. We just finished a game of Pax Viking, and we played it twice now on the Baby Baby Poo Face level. <laughs> and I can see why they've done that. We thought other. We thought of some. I thought of a different reason why. While we were just sitting here, one reason is that it's very easy to understand them all. Yes. You simply, you know, empty out a track, and it's easy to look around the table that and see is who's the, doing well. That is the second reason I just realized is that you can instantly see how other people are close to winning, as opposed to the other victory points, which are a little more. I don't want to say convoluted because they're not really that complicated but if you're being a little careless you could miss it yes but it is something that you have to get up and sort of count out and look more deeply into but i am enjoying my plays of packs viking i'm looking forward to finally getting to pull out the more complicated you know victory point conditions and seeing how that plays out we've been playing on the simplest level because we've been introducing new players and despite the fact that this is by 
a large margin the most accessible PAX game, it's still a little counterintuitive in some ways. And it's very, very reliant on keywords, and the keywords mean exactly what they mean and nothing else. And sometimes an action involves three keywords in sequence, and so then if you find a special action or an event card that removes one of those keywords, it's not immediately apparent how that's different. But it can make a tremendous difference. I'm enjoying PAX Viking. I don't know if it has the necessary tempo that I would be looking for. Because, again, in the comparison set, it still feels very much like a PAX game, although it's got a weird inverted geography thing, rather than building out a tableau that creates the geography of the map. Instead, you move around a map and build your tableau on the map, effectively. It's solidly, you know, 90 minutes to two hours, with a large player count, and that's not nothing. But you don't get the same kind of interesting combinatorics that you would get in another PAX game. And so other PAX games that tend to be tighter and leaner or tend to have more interesting card interactions. Like, for example, in PAX Viking, a lot of the ventures you're going to play are some variation of get $2, maybe get more dollars if you have something else in the map or something along those lines. And that's fine. I'm not saying it's 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 dull or uninteresting. Just when compared to some of the other card interactions you would get from some of your tableau builders, whether it's a PAX game or whether it's something like Innovation or Race for Galaxy or something like that, which tend to play in about half the length of time, and it still has a, Pax Viking still has a large learning curve. I'm wondering if it might be better to devote that amount of time to learning something else. But I agree with you. Pax Viking has been fun. The accessibility has been interesting, just watching the Pax formula work itself out in a slightly more accessible way. And I will grant that one thing that it has over pretty much any other tableau builder I've ever seen in any other Pax game, its sense of geography is very grounded. In order to play any card, you need to have a boat presence in a very specific place. And that is interesting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's interesting, but also very procedural, right? True. And I think this is what's adding along a lot of the time because it's an action to get the card, an action to move a boat to the location, and then an action to actually put the card on the, you know, you have to go through many steps in order to do everything. And sometimes that's very, A, frustrating to people because they don't realize they have to go through every single step or they've missed one or they don't understand how a certain step works. So, you know, you just backtrack, no, it's like, no, you have to first, you know, choose the card from over there. Then you have to move your boat to that actual you know, very specific part of the map in order to play it. And then now you have to take the play action. And now you, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Very procedural, but I'm interested. Like I said, I do want to try it with the next time I play it. It's either, you know, I don't, I can't say I just pass. No, don't, don't invite me. I don't want to play it, but I, de- <laughs> I definitely want to play with the different victory conditions. I agree. Before making a final decision, I would like to try at least the standard exactly. versions, if not some of the other ones. But I agree with you that it's a little, uh, I don't necessarily call it procedural, but yeah, you do have to do a number of steps in order to get even basic functions accomplished, which is not ideal. So I think it's good, probably not great. Correct. And that was our subsequent play at PAX Viking. We also got to play Dino Tea Party again with more players. It's a fantastic, silly little game with very interesting art, and and you can uh, role play a little bit with it, which makes it even more fun. More on role-playing in a minute, because we played another fantastic game. But anyway, Dino Tea Party is sort of like an advanced guess who. There's these dinosaurs, and they have all sorts of different traits. And you ask your opponent, you know, oh, you seem to have something in your teeth, Mark. Um, maybe you should get it out. And they tell you whether their teeth are showing or not. And you sort of, sort of have to deduce who's who. I was a little concerned that parsing all the conditions might be a little difficult in person, but no, it was, it was fine. So I agree with you. Advanced guess who, some opportunity for some light role play, delightful art, charming. 
that being said, let's move right into a million dollar script. This is a party game from Portal, their first sort of foray into party games. This is a review copy that got sent to us. It's not quite out yet. And what you're doing in Million Dollar Script is you're breaking into two teams. You could do three if you wanted. That does have enough components to do three. And you're pitching a movie to the game master and you have some conditions on that. You like generate heroes and villains and you sort of have story elements that you have to work towards. And the director also has traits that you sort of have to, you can play into in order to, you know, sway their decision one way or the other. And uh, I felt very bad that I had to be the game master, Mark. It seems super fun. <laughs> and I'm very interested into, into trying it and being on a team this time. The one thing I did feel is that I think for a party game, it goes a bit long. I think it's it's demand on the role play aspect for like a... Not so much for like a gaming party game, like if you have a bunch of uh, gamers and, and you want to bring them into a party game situation, that's fine. But if if you're like normal party games where it's like a code names where you're bringing people who have never played games before, I feel that role play element is a little too demanding for that length of game. Yes, it's. I agree with you that as far as party games go, it's a little less casual in that sense. It's not really amenable to people going in and dropping out the way you can do in code names. And there is, it's surprisingly intense to have to be able to present things that way. I would present this, I, I would compare Million Dollar Script to, to being a slightly more structured version of Snake Oil or other similar kinds of party games where you're making some sort of pitch. I found it borderline tedious. Here's why. The bits where the game was providing structure... It has the system whereby you pull cards to identify certain person, uh, uh, people with certain backgrounds based on what kind of movie you're pitching. That part was cool and where you're in a position where you have an established movie pitch and these persist from round to round. Your, 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 your movie pitch builds. I don't know what an actual movie pitch looks like, but I could believe that it's somewhat like this. And then suddenly you have to say, well, you know, here's the sidekick. The sidekick happens to be a washed up politician who's creating a monstrous machine. And you're like, wait, what? And having to work those in, that part I thought was kind of okay. The later rounds where you're just riffing and you're just trying to establish on movie tropes and it was just improv based on movie structures, that part I found a little bit less engaging. And I kind of was yearning for the simpler one-offs of something like Snake Oil, where it's like, okay, I need to market the love stick. Okay. No, it wasn't love stick. It was love rock. One one very uh, salient early gaming experience in Kingston was a, a, a riotous game of Snake Oil where Asimi had to pitch the Love Rock, and it was great. <laughs> I still remember that pitch for the Love Rock. But I do appreciate the fact that it does import a lot of these movie structure elements. The designer, Daniel Stamm, it's one of those things where, where they say, you know, the, the designer has experience in Hollywood, and you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. He was an AD for five days and a secondary shoot from some indie movie and you look him up oh no no daniel stam is legit he's been involved in a lot of films a lot of major motion pictures and so the author of the game is is a, a serious mover in the industry and the movie structure elements were interesting i just don't know that they lended it to a an hour-long party game of constant improv that's right you go through five rounds of introducing these limits to, you know, how far you can go in the story and what elements you're supposed to add. And then you go away and you talk to your teammates to develop the story. And you have to go through five rounds of this, which 
some people might really love, but they should have included, I think, like I said before, two different ways to play, like a three-arc story and a five-arc story, and choose which one you want to play. It was fun. The pandering element was fun. You're kind of encouraged to, and Walker did a great job of this, setting it up subtly. The movie producer will subtly intimate that they like certain details. And so then it's incumbent on us. And we actually discovered this organically. This was not... Walker didn't stress this at the beginning, so I, I don't want to deprive anyone of the joy of discovery. But if you're setting up the game for your group, I would encourage you to not tell them explicitly that the pitch should pander to your preferences and just let them try it and then respond appropriately. And so we just discovered based on Walker's scattered comments that, oh yeah, we should make the dog super salient in the movie. And so we kept twisting, oh wait, how can the dog be part of this scene? And every time we would do that, Walker's eyes would light up. It's like, I like where you're going with that dog scene. So those parts were good. Again, where there was more structure involved and where it was a little more a little more fast moving, I was enjoying myself. But the last couple of acts started to drag and there wasn't enough guidance being offered by the game system to really feel like I was like I was being guided along uh, a game experience rather than just doing miscellaneous improv. Agreed. And that was Million Dollar Script by Daniel Stam and produced by Portal Games. We played some more Scapegoat. Scapegoat continues to impress. This is a review copy sent to us by the designer, John Perry. And if you want social deduction in about 30 minutes, this is absolutely the way to do it if you want social deduction in small player groups. We have now kind of calibrated our expectations such that these that people don't panic quite as much. We commented early on, early on that an overwhelming preponderance of our games were ended by someone running to the cops, and now we know why. That's because we were always playing with Huey, and Huey, Huey always runs to the cops. You're a little bit skittish too, I have to say, because in order to catch the scapegoat, you need to have courage and some degree of trust or willing to stick your neck out a little bit. If not, you're just going to hand the, the victory to the scapegoat because you're just going to run and squeal like some sort of coward. And I have to say that for people, once again, it's the social deduction game for people who don't like social deduction games, but people who do like social deduction games like me still appreciate it. And so another great session or two of Scapegoat. Yeah, we knocked off two games back to back in a very short amount of time. Very easy rules load. Super fun to play. And the art is amazing. You go to love that art. <laughs> you do. I regret nothing. We also played a game, Mark, called Sonic the Hedgehog. This is Sonic the Hedgehog Crash Course. Walker. Crash there course, have been sorry. several Sonic the sorry, Hedgehog. Sorry, sorry, I, I didn't have the, I didn't have the subtitle here. I'm so. This sorry. is also a review copy we got from the designer Sean Dallas McDonald. So this is a racing game where you're racing it, racing ahead, and if you're the first to get to a map piece, you get some flicky bird. You get a flicky bird. You get a flicky bird, and you can also pick up some equipment. What, yes, what? everyone gets equipment by going on to a new tile. Every time you go on a tile, you get equipment. And it could be a boost or it could be a jump or a bumper or something or a bomb to, you know, damage people. So you're trying to get flicky birds. You're trying to push people around. And it, it, what, it does, what it does is it does a good job of keeping everyone at the same level. Really? No one, I didn't feel in our game anyone got very far ahead. Says until, the person until, who is in the lead the entire game. I was in the lead, but, but, <laughs> but not by two or three spaces. And I didn't win either. Well, but the thing is, okay, well, here's one of the dynamics that I thought was unfortunate. The primary way to acquire victory points in this race game is to be the first to push on to a new tile. And so you can be in a situation where the leader moves ahead three spaces, because that's as far as you can move absent special items, reveals a new tile. And if other people are three spaces behind, well... They move the three spaces, 
they move on to the tile again, but they don't get any bonus, so they're neck and neck with the leader, but the leader's getting all the money, and they're not even getting the comp- compensatory d- benefits of showing up later because if they... This happens several times to various people because if you show up to the same space that the leader's on, you're not even considered to be in second place at that moment. You're considered to be tied for first, and so you don't even get more equipment. And that happened a fair bit. It's true, but then the other players could gang up, gang up on the leader, hit them with pullbacks... Oh, we tried. ...and bombs... And damage and all sorts of fun. I even tried a chokehold, and that didn't work either. I think that did go a little bit longer than it should have as well, but I think all in all, it wasn't a terrible experience for the for the feel and the IP and the expectation. I agree that as far as race games go, it didn't, wasn't over long, but I didn't get any sense of speed. I also didn't like how some of the clever bits didn't really seem to manifest. So, like, for example, there's this idea of rings, which is very much in keeping with the property. They weren't as consequential or salient as I hoped they would be. There's also this idea of making shortcuts, which is geographically cool, and and it's a catch-up mechanism. It also feeds into some special abilities. That happened once in large part because oh no sorry it didn't happen once it would have happened once had had Huey not won the game at the turn up anyway so it never happened that's true and it's too easy for the leader to prevent there being shortcuts because the leader is the one who controls to a certain extent how the geography of the course is going to go and it is not in the leader's interests to allow for shortcuts because shortcuts help the rear players catch up so but it comes with these fantastically pre-painted miniatures the minis are very nice so if you really really love sonic then it will be a reach to enjoy this game. (laughs) That was Sonic the Hedgehog, Crash Course. Played another game of Babylonia, and I went back to Babylonia because I feel like Walker, I'm being bullied. People on the internet are telling me that I should like Babylonia more than I do. We did our full review of Babylonia, where we said Babylonia is good, not great. Not one of the pantheon of of Reiner Knizia's best games. Thoroughly enjoyable, solid tile air. No, that's not enough. You have to adore Babylonia Walker. You have to shave your head, don a saffron robe, and worship at the altar of Babylonia Walker. I refuse. Yeah, so do I. I like Babylonia. I'll play it any time. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Just not one of my favorite Renekin's Italian games. What do you want? I don't like the incremental scoring. I don't like the fact that turns seem a little procedural. The blocking isn't as salient as I would like it to be in other games. When I'm playing a game like Samurai, when I'm playing a game like Through the, uh, Through the Desert, even when I'm playing games like Blue Lagoon, I feel like there's more blocking. I feel like there's more dynamism, and I prefer the scoring systems. I'm sorry. I apologize for not thinking Babylonia is the best thing ever. I like it, but I, I went back to it in part because I keep thinking something must be wrong with me because the internet is gaslighting me, Walker. How dare you have an opinion? Apparently, I'm not allowed to have an opinion, or at least not that I'm allowed to have an opinion. That opinion is that Babylonia is the greatest tiling game Renner Knizia has ever made. I just don't happen to have that one opinion. No. Oh. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> it's fun. It is. I mean, I recommend it, but there are, you know. Four or five Reiner Kinsia tiling games I'd recommend before it. So there you go. Yeah, and that's Babylonia by Reiner Kinsia. Production is fantastic. These oh, yeah, it's very discs. Uh, super easy to teach. Much like all other Reiner Kinsia games. Well, with the exception of Tigers and Euphrates. Tigers and Euphrates is a little bit cumbersome to teach. It's but it's worth it. And the actions are very straightforward, and the, and the game just comes alive as you play it. Like the strategy and the depth of the game reveals itself as you play absolutely and that was babylonia by up-and-coming designer reiner knizia and for those following along at home that is one of your bingo card entrance walker's one joke about reiner knizia there's there's not much to joke about there (laughs) 
We played another game of In the Shadow of the Emperor. We played this about a year ago. In the Shadow of the Emperor is a game that was originally published in 2004, back in the, the, the days when there was Rio Grind games in Mayfair, and that's about it. It is effectively a four-player-only-ish area-majority game in which there are some interesting pseudo-political elements. I say pseudo because there's not really a whole lot of negotiation or haggling involved. But there's a lot of collusion possible between players on a number of different axes. That part I find interesting. The other part that I find interesting is there's this idea of your majority pieces, namely your nobles, aging out and dying. So your nobles can get married, which makes them more influential. They can also get older. You can also make them younger, but that's just like treating them with a doctor, giving them an extra 10 years of life, not actually making a 25-year-old shrink into a 15-year-old, although it's more fun to imagine that that is what's happening. It's true. It's yeah. magical. It's magical. Like you said, there's lots of moving parts going on at the same time, and it's great to sort of sort of figure out how they all move because we have action cards that are disappearing. So you have to figure out, you know, what, what can I get to now? What is the most important action to take? Because it might not be there when it's my turn. What nobles am I going to lose and where am I going to have to reinforce that awesome mechanism of like you said from the beginning which people didn't sort of grasp, internalize, yeah. internalize right from the beginning that you don't want to hold houses you want to you want them to flow because every time they switch hands there's victory points coming in and out so you sort of want to take it now make it weak so someone takes it from you and then instantly you know have those resources to the side that you can take it back and get more points again absolutely i was actually surprised and i'd forgotten this how few movement actions there are i remember there being more movement now not every game should or could be as dynamic as say al grande where things are moving all the time but it felt a little more static than I remembered because you can only move knights around easily, but knights can be dislodged. Your nobles, there's only two move actions for your nobles the entire game. Oh, sorry, for every round, not, not yeah. for the entire game. It's kind of a proto-worker placement, actually, because there are these action cards that are available to buy, but they're effectively worker placement spaces. But based on the cards that you take, that will determine whether at the end of the year your family has a son or a daughter, which is also very cool. Anyway, there's lots of nice little bits. It's one of those games where you can find yourself in a conflict with another player, and because of miscalculations on both, part, you can, both sides, you can end up in a quagmire that hurts you both. More on that later when we start talking about other games. And that's a little bit unfortunate, but I do keep going back to it over the years. Every It's the kind of game that I really want to play every couple of years or every three or four years because it does a number of other things that hasn't been repeated in quite this format before. And I do really like area-majority games where the politics are kind of structured in an interesting way. And that is absolutely true of In the Shadow of the Emperor. Yeah, I think you and I came to the same conclusion at the same time because it's one of those interesting games where the first few rounds, you're putting out so many pieces that the movement of those nobles don't really matter because you're just putting out new ones anyway. And then suddenly when they're all out or you want to use move particular ones, you look down at the board and it's like, oh, <laughs> there's only two cards that can do that. And in a four-player game, they disappear very quickly. It's at that. true. Because I think, they, like I said, they weren't used very much near the beginning, but near the end, they were vital pieces of action. Absolutely. Also, the player count is a bit of an issue. It's not, in my estimation, really worth the time with three players. So it's pretty much a four-player-only experience. But I do love me some somewhat classic small-box heroes, especially when they do something rather interesting. And that is In the Shadow of the Emperor by Ralph Burkert. Finally, for me, played another game of Imperium the Contention, and I've got to say, this continues to please. I've now seen every faction in play. This time we played with the Supreme Jerklord faction, which has the nasty habit of saying, oh, that's a nice ship you've got there. I guess it's mine now. 
It's really amazing in that I, I'm getting slight bits of Cosmic Encounter vibes in that. In turn one or turn two, someone could play out a technology, and then you think, well, great, how am I supposed to win against something that crazy? And then two turns later, you're playing something that wild. But yet, the game doesn't fly off the rails. And I think that's a non-trivial achievement. The cards all get to do interesting things, which I think if you're going to play a game like this, which is a pseudo-4X experience, fun things should happen. Again, I, I compare it to Quantum, sort of a pseudo-4X-y game with lots of conflict and lots of interesting special powers. And I think that Imperium is a, a, a kind of injects a little bit of the sort of Magic the Gathering feel, both because you can do some deck construction if you're inclined, and because the combat system is reminiscent of that, you know, I've got a 4-3 ship and it's fighting your 5-2 ship or, or, or what have you. I still haven't played with four players, which everyone says is the ideal player count, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it with two. I thought it was shockingly solid with three, and I'd still happily play it with three. And I'm looking forward to more content. Apparently the designer has been soliciting feedback for expansion ideas. And there's also a solo campaign, which I'd very much like to try, and which I might have to try when I'm all alone, crying myself to sleep in Vancouver. And that is my further experience with Imperium the Contention. Vancouver tears. The sweetest of tears. <laughs> and those are the games we played last week. And now on to a brief segment of news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, what's in the news? Board Game Arena. Uh, a few months ago did a New Year's sort of spectacular where they had 30 days of a new game every day. Now they're expanding that to 62 days of a new game every day. So for the next two months, we'll have a new game come out of, of beta into the general populace. Anything cool yet? Nothing yet. We've had <laughs> Chinese checkers and hand and foot. One game I've never heard of before, but who knows? Maybe we'll get some more exciting titles soon. And my second piece of Information is uh, Ruins of Arnak has now shot up again because they announced an expansion where players will now have unique powers. So that might be somewhat interesting, which it needs. Sure, a little bit more variety, a little bit more spice. You know, the game the game wasn't bad, but it just felt yeah. a little a little smoothed out. Exactly. Only one bit of news for me, and it's very very sad. Apparently, the license to Blue Moon, which had been. Uh, held by a publisher has now reverted back to Reiner Knizia. And so we are not starting down the barrel of a reprint to one of the greatest games ever made, which is very, very sad. I appreciate the fact that Reiner Knizia is kind of an industry unto himself. and He's got, you know, levels of business and he's kind of like a franchise. And so I have no doubt that him and his various business partners will be sending out feelers to try to get back into print someday soon. But who knows? Because that description could apply to any one of hundreds of designs of his at any given moment. Who knows? Who knows what will be re, uh, re-themed to as well? I don't know, man. Blue Moon has so much proprietary art. I'd be shocked if they decided to re-theme it and redo all that artwork. That would be very surprising, but conceivable. Another Animal Gangsters game, maybe? Oh, that's what I have to ask. Is that is it, is it all part and parcel? Art, everything else is all part and that reverts back or is, well, that, does the art assets remain with so i don't know the specific details about this i i imagine that one of the complicating factors of trying to reprint blue moon is that every people was illustrated by a different artist and so the rights complication might be more complicated there or at least more expensive i don't know who owns the rights to that but i assume if reiner canizia's business interests are the ones that are trying that, that were in a position to grant the license out to other publishers that it is somehow at least held through reiner canizia if not held by reiner canizia and that is the news and why it doesn't matter on to our topic for the week i here use the term week advisedly because time has no meaning 
Omnibus questions. So we've compiled a whole bunch of your questions, and we are going to address about half of them now. We're going to address the remaining half, and you can keep sending in questions up until the day of, and if we're inclined to answer them, we will. You can either post them on the guild, guild number 3236, there's a topic there, or you can email them to walker, dice at gmail.com. That's G-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. And so we've got a whole bunch of questions from our listeners to answer, so uh, let's get to it, Walker. I would like to hear your response for the first question, because I have my version. What is the meat cute for you and me? How, I had to look that up, what it meant, Mark. Oh, you didn't know? Okay. I didn't know. <laughs> Mark, it was a hot summer in Ontario, uh-huh. so I drove up to the sandbanks, parked the car, uh-huh. pulled out my copy of Space Hulk and tucked, and tucked it under my arm. This isn't going to be serious, is it? I started, you're not taking this I started walking along. Started walking along the beach. I, I feel like you're. I saw the the normal the, the normal crowds. I saw the soccer players, the the volleyball players, and and I thought to myself, "You're mocking me." When is it going to be my turn? When? And then in the distance, <laughs> Mark, in the distance, I saw it. What is that person doing? Could you just tell me when you're He's done? He's playing like, a board game. Hold a sign in or this, something? And it was Mark. He was doing Tigris yep. and Euphrates yep. strategic moves. And and I don't know what made him look up at that moment. I know you but, don't value my time. But, but he looked up. The listener's time. And our else. eyes met. Yeah. And he, and he looked down yeah. at my copy of Space Hulk. And we started to run towards each other. In, in slow the, motion? In the surf. And, and just as... And the rest of the story will be on our OnlyFans page. Swag OnlyFans. That's SVAG OnlyFans. <laughs> well, I was I was going to take this this endeavor seriously because I'm a professional broadcaster. But no, I, I remember very distinctly. I was I was you know moving to Kingston after having lived in a variety of places elsewhere. I never really successfully integrated myself into the gaming scene in Toronto for a variety of reasons, many of them my, my own fault. And so I said, you know, I'm going to be here in Kingston long term. At least I thought. <laughs> well, more on oh, that you're, later. You're I know, I know, I know. More on that later. So I'm I'm going to make an effort. Because this was actually pointed out by Efka from No Pun Included on Twitter. It's the tragedy of a lot of board gamers. I'm not going to say this is true of all board gamers. I'm not painting with a broad brush. But a lot of board gamers, really the board games, don't really like socializing that much, right? But the two go hand in hand. You need to find willing victims. I mean participants. I mean test subjects. I mean friends. That's the word I'm looking for. There we go. And so I I thought I was going to be strategic. Like, okay, who seems to be the social linchpin here that I need to get in good with? Not necessarily ingratiate myself, but just figure out that they're the people who organize things and or know when things are going down, right? Initially, I thought it was going to be a mutual friend of ours, El Guapo, uh, also known as the Wendigo, also known as the Yeti, also known as the North Wind. He's a, he's a figure of legend. That turned out to be false, but it was through El Guapo that he said, oh, my, a friend of mine is, is uh, hosting uh, a board game that we're going to play Orléans. Uh, you should come. And I'm like, uh, am I invited by him? Because I'd seen, I'd seen, I'd seen Walker around, uh, but I hadn't been invited by Walker. Said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. So that, that felt awkward. But when I went into the, you know, I think it was your, your mother's basement where it was being hosted. And I saw tabletop miniature stuff everywhere. And we were paying Orléans. I'm like, yep, this is the guy. <laughs> that was the sign. <laughs> That I knew that we were definitely headed in the right direction because anybody that has a lot of uh, tabletop miniatures terrain and wants to play a Euro is my kind of gamer. And that, to, to me, that wasn't the first time we met, but that was the first time when I realized, wait a minute, this is the guy I need to get in with. 
I think it was. How that, am I doing? Pretty good. <laughs> did, did we play Tigers and Euphrates that night? But I remember because that was the first time. No, we played Orléans, and then I suggested we play Tigers and Euphrates afterwards. Gotcha. No, but it was that same night, is what I meant. I don't think so. No. Okay. But anyway, I know it was that. That's when I knew. It's when uh, I didn't have to explain to you what Tigers and Euphrates was. <laughs> sure. Oh, maybe it was that night. No, I remember. You, yeah. Back in the days when we used to play two games back to back. Could have been. Yep. Yep. Back when I had that thing, what was it again? Time. 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 That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So what make Mark decide to move? Uh, it's for family reasons, uh, not tragedy. It's good family reasons. And I'm going to be in Vancouver for either six months or a year. What happens at the end of the six months? Uh, if I do leave Vancouver at the end of the six months, I'm going to actually going to be going back to Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I'm going to be away from Kingston for about a year. Uh, but don't worry. It's not going to be forever. And we are going to keep up the podcast in the meantime. All right, next up. Given that the rate of new games seems to be accelerating, how do you expect to handle these opportunities in the future? I have been more picky, making sure I don't tailor my choices. I.e., I always have to rein myself in thinking that we need to play this game because that's where our listeners seem to be headed or this is where our play group seems to enjoy these type of games. I always have to pull back and just say, no, Mike, you know, you do this for a reason. You need just to, you know, grab the games that are interesting to you and to you alone. I agree. Any time I've tried to acquire something because I specifically thought that, well, the listeners expect us to talk about this game or something, I've usually been a wrong and be disappointed. So I end up producing content that's not as good and that nobody asked for. <laughs> and so being guided by, by your own interests and indeed scaling back, as you say. Now, there's some, there, there are going to be games that are going to be left behind. I actually, our newsletter for this month is talking about precisely that. We wanted to play Sleeping Gods and we wanted to play more Oath. Neither of those two things is going to happen before I leave. Now, maybe after I leave, something will happen. Who knows? There are necessarily going to be things we wanted to get played that are not going to happen. But such is the way of things. I'm I'm just glad that we're still able to find the time to go back to 10, 20, 30-year-old Euros, like the occasional play of Lancaster, like the occasional play of it in the, uh, Shadow of the Emperor, just to pick out two recent examples. And uh, just accepting that, uh, you know, sometimes the hot new thing is not going to be something that we're going to experience. That's right. And read more rule books that I also have here. Mm, yeah, that's helpful. This will be more for you, I think, this next one. Mark, I it says, so. what makes attritional combat as an in Innis bad and will you give Innis another chance with the we need a king module Inish is another game much like babylonia where i'm not allowed to have the opinion i don't like Inish very much i'd play it again honestly if somebody put in front of me if 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 people really like it i'd, I'd play it again i wouldn't get up and leave rather than play Inish, and i wouldn't insist on, on imposing my will uh, i'm not particularly inspired to give it a chance with the we need a king module people rave about it that was not one of the problems i had with the game the end game was not an issue that I had with Inish. Now, as far as attritional combat is concerned, attritional combat isn't always bad. It's sometimes okay if it's a very minor element and the attritional combat still has some elements of transactionality about it. The two examples that I would give are Antica and Imperial. That's purely attritional combat, but it works okay because combat is a minor element of the game and you can't get stuck in quagmires for no appreciable gain. That's the problem with Inish. One small mistake on either an attacking player or a defending player, congratulations, the game spirals out of control. And not even in a way where like one player demonstrably is hurt and needs to rebuild. In a way that every player is substantial 
substantially affected and the game state itself suffers. That's one of the main problems that I have with Inish. Oh, but Mark, smart players don't do that. Yes, of course, if you only play with smart players, that's fine. But I like when, when games are a little more robust and they can't be ruined by a simple fight that someone pulls mistakenly. Anyway, no more on Inish, please. Walker, what's your ideal game that hasn't been made? I hope it never will, Mark. Oh, yeah? Yes. Do tell. Well, just because. Then then what? what is ne- what is next? <laughs> right? If your ideals game made, then you're just like, oh. It's like some of, some of the, the, the funnest moments in what we do is is finding that one little mechanism that meshes with another mechanism. That's or, true. Or, you know, finding a new way to manipulate things. And that is one of the things I love about this uh, this this hobby and if i had to like nail a game down i think i'm going to talk about it later on and that would be uh level seven uh invasion mm-hmm. it just sort of has that buckets of plastic it's cooperative it does take a lot of boxes for you yeah yeah it's got uh the fact that you can upgrade units it has uh, an amazing theme it has multiple things going on at once yep. yeah that is kind of your ideal game isn't it it is the ideal game for me that hasn't been made is probably some kind of grand strategic Reiner Knizia negotiation game. Because I love me grand strategic negotiation games. Uh, the upcoming game by Phalanx Coalitions looks right up my alley. And oh my goodness, it's probably not going to be very good, but I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And Reiner Knizia does good negotiation and trading games. Quolatus is really good. He did a number of other Roman-themed games that involve trading and negotiation. Worked really nicely. So if for whatever reason he were inspired to do some sort of grand strategic ne- negotiation game, I think that would probably be right up my alley. But I don't see it happening, and that's fine. I agree with you. The imperfections of games are sometimes more... You know, that's deep. That's that, that's that's so deep, Walker. That's got layers right it's there. It's layers and depth. This one, next one must be for you as well, because I'm... What are your thoughts on Magic the Gathering? Like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I am... I mean, I'm glad that it exists because it keeps game stores in business. It's true. Because I'm sure as hell not keeping just, them in business. I'm just wondering, at this point, is there a, too much of a barrier to entry? Like, there's so much more rules out there now. So many, like, pages and pages of keywords. Well, if you're playing certain formats, that's the thing. There's so many different formats in Magic the Gathering. There are very accessible ones. True. And then there's, like, this whole timing mechanism that... Oh, yeah, the stack. The stack. I haven't played Magic the Gathering in 25 years. So I'm not in a position to comment. But I'm glad it exists for market reasons. Yeah. For market reasons and the whole genre that it brought, this sort of CCG sort of deck building. Yep thing i appreciate all of that and the number of artists that they've been able to employ and Mm -hmm. and bring along happy for all of that well it also and it also come to think of it introduced the notion of a professional tabletop games player sooner or later that might trickle down into something i'm good at (laughs) yeah definitely yeah and given that i'm good at precisely two games i I think then i i I might be waiting for actually i'm i'm in the opposite I'm in the opposite field for that. I, I, I'm not a fan of the fact that sure. it brought tournaments into into gaming. I think that's what uh, just took me out of Warhammer altogether. And that's fair. And uh, anyway, let us move on. How do you teach people to be gracious losers or winners? I have no idea. And if you do, please tell me. I don't. I just say, give them a hard time either way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. That's the only tool I have in my toolbox. Giving people a hard time. It doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. And yet I keep going back to it. (laughs) Uh, I I don't say, I don't think it doesn't. uh, Would I say it doesn't work? I think it works. Okay. I do think it works. All right. Well, if you you just give them like. You are a parent and you also have a dog. So I must defer to your experience of training people to act a certain way. I wouldn't make it that brutal, but (laughs) no, 
I didn't mean that in a bad way. It's just setting expectations and trying to, to, to model certain kinds of behavior. I've never been very good at persuading people to act in a certain way. Playing with ideas, I can sometimes do. But trying to change behavior, pfft. Maybe it's just saying dude a lot. Like, dude. <laughs> That's okay. A corollary that, do you have tips for parents to deal with children that cannot lose against their parents in competitive games? Oh, here's the thing. I've been accused of not wanting to play with kids. That's not true. Back before, in pre-pandemic times, I played with kids all the time. Deal up a, a hand of cockroach poker. Deal up a hand of skull. Deal up a hand of any number of, of dexterity games. I am happy to play any number of games with children. But <laughs> I have no... The thing is, when they start acting acting badly, I know it's not my problem. <laughs> my only advice would be just to put the game away. That's what I have here. You just... Oh, yeah? You just... And you don't even say... You don't even... And you definitely, if they start... You know, you don't say, oh, okay, don't worry, you know... You just put it away and you don't stop putting it away and you put it on the shelf and mm. you say, we're done. Sure. And then, and it, you just continually do that until they realize that that is why the game is being put away mm. and then they will stop. I shouldn't say that they will stop. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> it's been my experience that they will stop doing. That's good advice. What, uh, what makes the game stop? Because deep down they want to play that game. Hopes, they yeah, want yeah. to interact with you. Yeah. They want to have fun with you. And if you just end it, they will, they will and realize And learning why. to be a good loser is a very important character trait. It is supremely important. I have a, a, a special additional question here, Walker, that I would like to add to the, to the schedule. How did you get so wise? <laughs> By on. failing a lot. <laughs> there, is a, there is an antidote, Mark, that says you learn from your mistakes. Anecdote, yeah. And it, it is true. <laughs> Uh, so I've got an answer to this. Are you going to go to a convention at some point or do a meetup? Well, the the vaccines are going out. Yep. People are are meeting in, in person. So I'm assuming that the meetup in Kingston will start again soon. So uh, I probably still won't be going to that. <laughs> <laughs> just not, because I've been... I just When the game store opens up and has its regular night, well, you're not going to do that anymore? Because I... Because it... It it starts when oh, I'm right. usually asleep. That's true. I, That's I, true. I do very early mornings. That's but true. But I'm going to sorry probably make the exception because uh, our normal in game in person gaming is going to be cut off. So in order to get some in person gaming mm-hmm. and get some games played, I might have to make an exception. I will say that my enthusiasm for convention environments or meetup environments has skyrocketed since the pandemic. So. If there's something sufficiently local, if we're invited, if there's something like, am I going to go and try to try to organize some event from the ground up? No, because I don't know if there's enough interest in, in that. You know, that seems like a strange way to get yourself back into the scene. But as far as uh, attending local events, absolutely 100% once they start up again. That is my intention. All right, Walker, how big is your collection? It is fractionally smaller than it was. A couple years ago, I did a massive purge where I went from probably, oh, I don't even know, Mark, 300, 400 down to uh, less than 100. It's up there again now because of of, of the newer stuff coming in. But uh, so I think I, I shouldn't, I haven't counted, but I think I'm at about 100 now. Uh, Board Game Geek says, I own 986 games, 494 of those are expansions, so effectively 500 games, some of them with expansions. I uh, might have a bit of a problem. Mark. Moving, moving Mark. on. Mark. <laughs> yeah, no comment. 
No, it's not a problem. I don't think it's a problem at all. It's it's a problem if you're not feeding your family and you're making other sacrifices, then it's a problem. Well, I'm waiting for lots to come in, so I have something to feed my family. There you go. Yeah. Because there's lots there. Um, Mark, what sort of music do you listen to? Uh, my two favorite artists are Tool and Local H. Uh, so prog-ish, metal-ish, rock, and grunge rock, respectively. Uh, when I was, I, I still have a, a love for folk music from Harry Chapin and um, Yusuf Islam and uh, Jim Croce and stuff like that. But mostly it's it's rock music. I do listen to a little bit of everything with the exception of non-Johnny Cash country, which I don't listen to. Except for all due respect to uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Vaccines, Dolly Parton, for whom I have endless respect and admiration. But yeah, mostly rock. Yeah, I just have I listen to almost all music but country. Like, but like you said, uh, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is the exception. Yeah, every, everyone likes Johnny Cash. Yeah. Exactly. And if we're to pick up bands, I am a huge Kiss fan, Metallica, Diant Word, and Dubstep. Yeah, Walker, most, my perception is, Walker, that you mostly like stuff from, you know, 80s, more like mid to late 80s well, as, a, as opposed check. to like mid to late 90s. No, that's right. Is, I just know this question is, what sort of music yeah. do you like? Yeah. yeah. So actual music. Yeah. So the 80s stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, it's weird. This is one of those things where I think our generational difference, which doesn't manifest itself frequently, does. Like music, the music that you that, that you like is often like hard-coded into you when you turn about 18 or yeah, so, right? I wonder, I wonder about that. But I, I was, I'm thinking about that because it's always yeah. the adage where it's like, my music was better. But sure. I, do, I do listen to a lot of newer stuff. You do. Yes, absolutely. And then... But then I listen to... And I listen to older stuff, too. But so. then I listen to a Tom Petty song, uh-huh. and I realize that none of that stuff is true. The older stuff is better. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. There is... I have a hard time finding new music th- to listen to because, number one, I like alternative hip-hop and not... Uh, you know, I don't like Drake. I like uh, Most Def or Yassine Bey, whatever he's calling himself this minute. And... Um, you know, Black Star and uh, Talib Kweli and stuff like that, which is not really the sort of dominant stream of, of, of hip hop. I don't, I'm not judging other hip hop. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, so I don't really uh, like that. Uh, uh, pop music is really hit or miss for me. I do like some pop music, but a lot, but but that's difficult. And the overwhelming majority of new rock releases is either indie rock or very much in the indie rock sound. And that's, n- that's not my taste. Uh, and I come from this, honestly. I lived in Montreal before... Arcade Fire signed their record deal. So I come, I, I'm a hipster of disliking Arcade Fire. <laughs> anyway, I, we could talk about music for hours, but moving on. All right, next question is El Grande, Tigers and Euphrates, and Gloomhaven. Kill one, play one, one last time, and then never again, or marry one, as in keep it in your collection forever? So this was asked on the forum by Sam. Sam asked this question, I think because he knew it would cause me pain. And Sam was one time a friend until this question. I used to like Sam. Exactly. I, th- I used to think Sam was a good guy. I thought he was a countryman. Yeah. I thought he was a member of, of uh, La Patrimoine. Yeah, I never mistaken a person's personality before this badly. It was really bad, yeah. What do you? Well, Walker, this is easier for you it because is. you don't like El Grande nearly as that, much as that, I do. And then that, and I'm going to cheat, right? Because <laughs> El Grande, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah. Gloomhaven, I'd play one more time because, I'm, like I said, I'm going to cheat and say, well, say it's a campaign. Play, campaign, <laughs> and you play the entire campaign. <laughs> that was the cheat that I thought of too. And uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I would keep uh, Tigers and Euphrates. I would. I would actually give the same the same responses, even if honest. El Grande is. 
a seminal classic and I love playing it and I would definitely feel a tremendous harm if it were removed from existence. But when compared to Tigers and Fates and Gloomhaven, I'm afraid it, it it's not quite at that level. Now, in terms of influence, if this were more like a fourth dimensional perspective, which game never would have existed, well, then my answers are completely different. 100%. Uh, then I would actually say write Gloomhaven out of existence because the world doesn't need more dungeon crawlers trying to be like Gloomhaven, right? And uh, then El Grande absolutely has to has to still be in existence because of its tremendous influence in, in Euro development and showing how conflict and dynamism can be introduced in the Eurosphere. But anyway, that's that's kind of a digression. So if I had to pick on those terms, I'd play Gloomhaven one last time, keep Tigers and Euphrates in my collection, and I'd write El Grande out of existence. But actually, again, cheating, I would write Sam out of existence. Ooh. He deserves it. This question, he deserves it. <laughs> this is self-defense. Exactly. It's true. All right, next question. Do you consider playing certain games for the podcast research slash work rather than play? I said no. And if I ever sensed that in Mark, I would also stop. I, I agree. There have been times when I've been tempted and I've managed to pull myself back. There's one exception, though. If we have planned and committed to doing a feature game and we know we don't like it, I we we do feel like we keep, sometimes we have to keep playing it just to make sure that we're giving it a fair shake to be able to fully appreciate its deficiencies and its advantages. But other than that, no, I don't really consider it work. Unless you're a member of the Canadian Revenue Association, in which case it's absolutely work and all these things are tax deductions. Agreed. Is roll to hit on a five plus outdated? Hell no. Hell no. Especially, Hell no. Especially if it's in a dice pool. Yeah, if you mass enough dice, absolutely. Like claustrophobia-style combat where you... No, no, of course not. Or even in the Space Hulk instance where it's only a couple of dice, I'm fine with that as well. You're right. As long as they're not like D20s or D8s, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, especially since Space Hulk has that great sustained fire element. Exactly. Assuming with sustained fire. Uh, Yes. There are versions of Space Hulk without sustained fire. Let us not speak of these versions. Never again. Is liking or disliking certain games a deal-breaker to use a user as a geek buddy? Uh, For me, Yes. Uh, when I'm, what I do, I've talked about this before. This is p- p- picking up on a specific thread. When I mentioned that I have cultivated a list of geek buddies on board game geek to help me judge things, uh, to get on my geek buddy list, you need to have one of two things, either really, really good comments. The kind that I used to try to put in games, but now I don't have, I don't have time. I don't really leave comments anymore in games. It's, it's a bad habit. I'm trying to get back into it. Or, uh, you need to have unpopular fringe opinions that let me know that you might also have other unpopular fringe opinions that are at least useful to see. So, for example, when I was crafting my initial list of Geek Buddies, I was looking for people who really liked Euro games but didn't like uh, Power Grid. That was kind of my my metric. So if you had a rating of like six to lower a Power Grid, that was one way to get me to look at you. Another thing is Battlestar Galactica. If, if you didn't like Battlestar Galactica, gave it a low rating, that also made me take a hard look at you. And I don't have, I don't use the Geek Buddy system, but the only thing I had here was the fact that some people listen to the podcast and they don't like anything we say, but they use that information, Yep. you know, to curate their decisions. One right? of my so, favorite pieces of feedback. Yeah. I don't agree with any, I don't agree with any of your tastes, but I still find what you have to say useful. Exactly. What are your top five character? Sorry. What are your top five characters or entries in any game? Entities. Entities? Ah. What are your top five characters or entities in any game? Okay, I've actually answered this question twice. That's uh, good because I haven't at all. So that yeah, so I'll, I'll take your. I, I kind of I thought that that would happen, so I, I prepared in advance to do it twice over. First of all, non-licensed properties. All right, in no particular order: shadows flicker like flame from Spirit Island, Kaja from Vengeance, male- malevolent life forms from Race for the Galaxy, 
I love those malevolent life forms. They look like they're ready to go to bat for me. Grill from Street Masters and Shona Carano from Aristea. Shona Carano, by the way, is everything I love about the Infinity Universe. Shona Carano is a Spanish woman wielding a Scottish sword with an Austrian Hazar coat. And oh my goodness, she is badass. I was going to say, I don't have a list just because I normally just like playing all of them. I always like trying to find different strategies or different ways to bring out different parts of their decks or characters or abilities. So I really just don't have... Then there's my list of five licensed characters. Sagat from Street Fighter. He's been adapted several times. Actually, usually pretty well. Han from The Fast and the Furious, who's definitely one of the coolest men on film. Pearl from Steven Universe, who's been adapted a couple times. Terry Bogard from King of Fighters. And Emmanuel Kant. <laughs> Not really a license, but uh, I'm going to call it one. Oh, I see. You could, I thought this was like in a particular game, rate them. But this is just across the... Gotcha. Mark, do you store games vertically or horizontally? Or maybe diagonally? <laughs> Almost purely horizontally. I stack them. Uh, most of the time I find that when there are cool inserts, they don't work well when they're standing up. Plus, it's just harder to make efficient use of shelf space when they're standing up. Well, I do the Calyx system, so I do all my stuff vertically. Unless, like you said, there's some big games or some other games that just don't work well vertical, then I have a c- couple... Uh, boxes just for vertical uh, horizontal games. Relatedly, what is your preferred way to organize inside game boxes? Loose bags, included inserts, aftermarket inserts, a mix. Uh, it's almost 99% loose bags. Inserts usually get chucked to the side the moment I open the box, mostly just because I store them vertically. So, you know, bags, you put all the heavy stuff on the bottom because you know you're going to put things in vertically. I am always suckered by the siren song of the almost perfectly functional insert. You know the thing that has wells for everything but doesn't quite work properly? I find it so hard to part with those. Otherwise, I I ditch inserts no problem. And third-party aftermarket inserts I almost always find to be a waste of money and space. And you actually have a specific story about this, Walker, because uh, for one thing, many games I feel don't need it. The setup is simple enough. And so often, and this is is an absolute deal-breaker for you, I'm never going to get a third market after party aftermarket insert if it's the case that i have to collate player material from several different trays one of the advantages of a bag system is you can just throw a bag at somebody oh you're playing red here's all the red stuff and if you have a an insert system where it's like okay well here's your two things from this tray and here's your three things from this other tray why did i give this company 50 dollars to make my life more difficult yeah if i save anyone money don't buy an insert for scythe there is no point. <laughs> All of the components get used almost immediately, except for some of the resources. Everything else goes on your player boards and immediately goes out into play. You just throw people the bags and you're ready to go. There's no point. I've like had to get rid of it. Plus, all the stuff doesn't fit in even the giant box yeah. with the insert. All right. What is your favorite Knizia game from each decade he has been published? So I'm going to skip the 80s. I know he published in the 80s, but I didn't really play anything of his from the 80s. So for me, uh, from the 90s, it's obviously Tigers and Euphrates. From the aughts, it's Blue Moon. Now, the teens, so 2010 to 2019, uh, is actually really tricky for me because between 2005 and about 2015, he entered what I would consider to be his kind of slow period. He didn't really release a whole lot of games calibrated to my taste, a whole lot of reprints, a whole lot of apps, a whole lot of family games, things like that. But there was a surprisingly good burst of output near the end, but and I'd have to say that it would be the quest for El Dorado, the Golden Temples. It would be my favorite from the teens, but there's some competition there. And then from 2020 to 2021, uh, the current decade, I would have to say it's Well Writers, which 
is definitely an, a very, very, very good design. And I'm happy to say that of the two years, it's my favorite of his from those two years. I'm fairly close to the same. Tigers and Euphrates. Then in the 2000s, Lord of the Rings. Had a great, a great game for Lord of the Rings. Definitely very influential. Ahead of the curve in terms of co-ops, no in, doubt. In the teens, it would be Yellow and Yancey. And then in just currently, I think Whale Riders and Llama Dice, you know, are head-to-head, in my opinion. <laughs> Walker, what was the last game that greatly surprised you by how much you enjoyed it? I think it was, it was actually what we just talked about was Whale Riders. When I read the rule book, it seemed very straightforward and, and basic with no nuance. But once we played it, because we just got finished playing the card game, which was, yes. which was I don't want to say painful, but painful. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, the board game looks like it's just much the same. And didn't. And then I, I didn't, it was a very nice surprise. For me, it's probably a toss up between Imperium the Contention and Regicide. I didn't have very high expectations for either of them. And they've both proven to be thoroughly enjoyable probably the edge goes for regicide just for how much mileage it gets out of a simple standard deck of cards what are the cornerstone games that gamers who are diving deep should try to make a point of playing at least once okay i have some criticisms about some of the implied premises of this question but i will answer it later walker we keep seeing tigers and phrase over again but it's a great conflict game oh yeah great balance scoring where you're not just you know hitting the same thing over and over again Kalis is a great another great core worker placement game back to the like blocking positions where it actually matters uh agricola is a great you know heavy worker placement sort of you know uh, manage pay your workers because you know we gotta pay your workers pay all your workers now scythe is a great one for you know uh tableau building showing you have have your space pull pushing it's not sorry pushing stuff off your board (laughs) okay making your own little engine builder we don't have to agree you want to call it I think it's just an all-round, hits a whole bunch of mechanisms that are great, and uh, Gaia Project, because it's just a great Euro, another solid resource management game. I want to stress once again that I don't think there's a list of games that you have to have played to be a serious gamer or to be a gamer at all. Like all these labels that people get thrown, oh, you're not a real gamer. I wish I could say that, Mark, but I was just on Twitch this morning Uh playing Splendor, Mm -hmm. and someone came on and said they had not played Splendor, and I I had to... (laughs) I had to right click on their name uh-huh, and, and block them and remove them from because they're clearly from Twitter. not a I, I've got the power for yeah. the, the the Twitter board game area uh-huh. and, and they were done. Yeah, no, I I don't buy that. Uh, but I do I do recognize that there's a certain activity. You know, when people I, I've I've said this before, I'm repeating myself, but whatever. When you're immersing yourself in a new hobby, sometimes you want to reach up on the back catalog. Again, with music, right? Like, I want to get into rock music. I want to see where it came from. I want to start listening to things like Little Richard. I want to start listening to some blues so I understand where rock came from. You know, stuff like that. And if you want to do that with board games, but that's a big if. That's a huge if. I'm not saying this is necessary. I would probably say some of the seminal stuff, mostly from the 90s, actually. I would say, yeah, Tigers and Euphrates. I would say El Grande. I would say Space Hulk. I would say probably... I don't know, maybe there's a, a later Tableau Builder, probably Race for the Galaxy, just because of how many Tableau Builders have, have come uh, come following it. Off the top of my head, that's what I'd have to say. But if you told me to include any sort of gaming canon of the seriously influential games over the past few years or the representative of their types, I'd probably then want to look into more miniature stuff, into more uh, tabletop wargamey stuff. But off the top of my head, those are the four that, 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 that come to mind. Yeah, and I, I also have to say, if... 
if you know someone that's deep diving, you just tell them that they have to find something that they relate to or some sort of theme that they can grab onto and and just have enjoy playing, right? Because there's no particular game. Because there's so much, such yeah. varied taste. If out you there. enjoy getting a historical context from something, absolutely fill your boots and go find those older titles. If not, don't for, force yourself. Like especially not for cred, right? <laughs> that seems like one of the silliest reasons to do anything. Yeah, especially because, like you said, the, you know the older games are good, but some of these newer games have taken those those core mechanics and developed them into such some of them, yes. Yeah, some of them. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. every game. You said every game. I'm I'm joking. You didn't say every game. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and just don't think more things. So some of the newer games might be just a better f- a fit as well. Oh, absolutely. Some of them might absolutely be a better fit. Yes. This next one, I just need to quickly remind Mark that we're probably already at the hour mark. Yeah, yeah. And going another like hour and You're a half. You're the one wasting our time now. Just, I, just do I'm it. Just saying I, the sand start the sand timer started. Yep. So yeah. Go ahead. All right, go ahead. Uh, does BattleTech count as Macross or a Macross adjacent game? No. With the understanding that gateway games are likely either insulting or relevant, I, I dispute this characterization. There has been some discussion about filler game as a title being somewhat dismissive. I see where that's coming from. But then there are some people who say, oh, well, you know, calling it a gateway game is insulting. I disagree entirely. And there are many, many gateway games that I would happily play any day of the week. And so I, I don't know where this... Yeah, no, I'm, implied I'm, denigration is coming. Yeah, from. I didn't understand the. I, well, I understood the question, but I don't agree with any of the questions. I, I, I don't agree with there, that statement. Either. There are great gateway games that uh, have their own sort of traits, like as in they're yes. they're very easy to teach. Yes, people can start playing them right away. They understand, them, and they, they just make some great games. Some of them are just core core good games, like absolutely. Yeah, and I think so. If you're asking me, how would I go intro- go about introducing someone from the hobby? I would absolutely start with many of the things that are classified as gateway games. But the, I've had more success not trying to tailor mechanisms, but tailoring a theme. Like if somebody really gravitates towards a visual style, start them with that. So you know, one way you can do this is literally if you have a collection or if you if you have access to a collection, lay out two, three, or four games that you think are appropriate for the time length and their ability to handle rules and say this one is nominally about x this one's nominally about y and they say oh that looks pretty then set it up so if they find the if, if they really like the, the the cute pictures of porpoises in whale riders by all means set up whale riders don't necessarily pitch them whale riders because you think the market elements will appeal to them because they're a bean counter in real life or something i don't know you get the idea so i don't know is this one as loaded as i think it is and how is it how it how easy is it for either of you to separate the art from the artist, so to speak? I find it very easy. Uh, the point is not... Uh, I assume this is about some of our statements in the past. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I find it extremely easy to separate the art from the artist. The point is we have a platform and we have the ability to sort of amplify... Not to not to puff us uh, ourselves up too much. I'm, I'm not saying that we move a whole bunch of units. But we have an hour or so every week where we get to talk about what we want to talk about and we don't want to talk about people that are jerks. So yeah, that's what I have. It says there's so much out there. And if we get to, if we don't want to talk about certain things for certain reasons, then we don't. Yeah. But many of these games I still very much enjoy because it's in the privacy of your own home. It's a different kind of thing. If these are, it's complicated, but my, our, our refusal to talk about games by certain designers is completely independent from our ability to necessarily enjoy those games by those designers. Exactly. We have a responsibility, I think, to our listeners to bring certain things to light. And Absolutely. Which game is least like Mage Knight? Your mom. That's what I've written here. 
Well, here's the thing. When it comes to Mage Knight, there's a lot of interlocking systems, and so naturally it ends up being compared. But if I wanted to think of, of a game that's least like Mage Knight, I would probably think of your mom. What is the worst game of the best game you've ever played? So the worst session, I think, of the best game yes. we've ever played. I've had some bad sessions of Tiger's Euphrates, where people didn't really grasp what was going on, and they just went off in the little corner and just, just played tiles for points. That's all they ever did. They didn't seek out conflicts. They didn't prepare themselves for conflicts. They didn't do anything like that. They just thought that, you know, it's a tiling game, so clearly all I should be doing is just laying these tiles on individual little atomistic elements, kick them out of a kingdom, and they're like, okay, well, I'll just go start another all the damn time. Not their fault. I mean, just because it's the greatest game ever made doesn't mean it's for everybody. But I've had one or two sessions that were just like that, and it was it was a bit painful. Also because I was just I just felt bad because as the game explainer, I probably hadn't done a good job of preparing them for it. Yeah, I don't have a specific game here, but it's one of those things where maybe someone doesn't grasp a certain rule or they misread a rule and their whole game was based around going towards a certain strategy that didn't exist or they misinterpreted, and then it just turns it the whole session sour. Yeah. Next is, one is, sorry, go ahead. What is the best game of the worst game you've ever played? I have a very specific session in mind for this. I think you have the same one. I, I think I'm, so too. I, it'd be hilarious. I have Starship Samurai. I have Starship Samurai. Sweet. <laughs> we had so much fun playing Starship Samurai because we were just ripping the game the entire time. Yes. One of us would play a card and the target of the take that card would be like, okay, we, <laughs> and it was just, we, we, we loved playing the game and we hated the game. Yeah. It was so bad. <laughs> so bad. Some people like their co-ops brutally, near impossibly difficult, and others won't have fun unless they know they for sure they can win. Where do we fall on the spectrum? Uh, I like them very difficult. And if you want to, and if you know for sure, if you want to win every time, then just cheat. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, the, the whole needing to win every time, I, I can't help but feel that that's a it's weird not, competitiveness. I, I, I think we're reading into it, too. It doesn't say that they have to win, but that they can win. Theoretically? Oh. Yeah. Oh, that'd be interesting. I'd, yeah. I'd I, I wouldn't necessarily rule out the intrigue of a, of a co-op game that said it is impossible to win this yeah, game. That's if it was done say, well. I suppose to say every game you can win. Sure. So, sure. So I just, yeah. I am less picky than Walker. I really appreciate it when a game is super difficult. QV, my recent comments on Regicide. But I also don't mind co-op games that are too easy. QV, Spurred Island, and Difficulty Level Zero. Yeah, and we just talked about that with Regicide, right? Yep. With, if, if, you want, if you want to make it easier, then just make it easier for yourself. Yeah. Who is your favorite Street Masters fighter, and why is it Grill? Well, my favorite's Grill, and it's Grill because Grill is awesome. He's a gecko judoka. What else could you possibly want? I only have one criticism of Grill, though, and this is incredibly nerdy, and everyone prepare to roll your eyes. And that is that Grill is very good at crowd control, namely taking care of lots of small minions at once, which is not what judo is good at. That's more of an Aikido kind of thing, but I'm willing to forgive it because Grill is awesome. What about you, Walker? It's funny. I read it the other way around. I said I just read it as what who who's your favorite Street Master character and why? I forgot was I didn't read the grill part. I, just, <laughs> I think I just briefed over it. Mine was it's the same answer to both. Giant Panda. Giant Panda, yeah, Chan Chan. Yeah. I also my second favorite though is definitely Axel. And if, if for what it's worth, Axel is the best designer insert I've ever seen in a game. It kind of has a bit of that look of this is a real human that's been inserted into a board game, but I'm willing to forgive it also because just how effective he is. Because Grill is... The one thing I have against Grill in terms of effectiveness, Grill is not a support character. Axel is. I enjoy support characters. Will we see Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater branching out into other franchises? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> if, if something strikes us as silly, then I can almost guarantee 100% it will. <laughs>
yeah, I don't think we're get, we're not going to branch out into like genuine media criticism. That's not uh, that's not going to happen. Although, I, like I said earlier, definitely check out our MySpace area, and you'll find some very interesting stuff there. <laughs> is there a board game on your shelf that is there for purely nostalgic purposes? No real plans to get it played again. Not after the purge. Not after the purge. Well, there's still okay. So there's still War Room. Do you plan on getting War Room to the table ever? Yes. Okay. Well, I wish you luck. Well, no, I'm just I'm not going to yeah. be there. Not like I wouldn't play it. I'd happily play Worm. Uh, for me, there are a couple of uh, because I, I'm, I'm a collector with a huge collection. I feel like I have the luxury of keeping things around just to the off chance, and so some of them effectively are for nostalgia purposes because there's no local people who would want to play it. A salient example of this is La Révolution Française, La Patrie en Danger, which is a five to six player negotiation game about the French Revolution. I don't know if there are enough locals that would be interested in, in spending six hours with that particular rule set, but I'm never going to get rid of it. This is for you, Mark. I strongly enjoyed The Good Place TV show found on the integration of philosophy, found the integration of philosophy interesting. Do you have a suggestion for someone looking to dip their toe into philosophy? Depends on what you're looking for. If you want a very accessible, albeit slanted, Summary of a lot of Western philosophy, you can read Bertrand Russell's The History of Philosophy. Uh, Bertrand Russell is someone with whom I do not see eye to eye on many things, except for pacifism. I was down, I'm, I'm, I'm down with his pacifism. And his history of philosophy is very much like, here are a whole bunch of thinkers from the past and why they were wrong and the ways they disagreed with me, but it's eminently readable. If you want to get started in uh, my field's namely German metaphysics and ethics, then the groundwork, the grounding for the metaphysics of morals by Immanuel Kant is probably the single greatest thing ever written. And if you can find it, The Vocation of Humankind by Fichte is a great introduction to German idealism. I, 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 I highly, highly recommend it. Very readable and also very strange, but in a very characteristic German idealism kind of way. What? what? Sorry. Are we, are Walker, we... did you complete your quest to clear your shelves? There was some discussion a while back about a purge. Well, we talked about that a lot yeah. already, and will it happen again? Yes, the sh- the shelves are are quickly filling again. I think this will be once once you get back in a year, we will probably assess the entire situation and discuss on how to deal with it. The purge too, the repurging. Hey, we can do like a little Patreon push here. If you at a certain tier, you get free games. We that, we we already have that. That's what I'm saying. We have it. Yeah, as one people know, we have. Okay, it. well, fair enough. It's a good way to get rid of some of these games. This isn't a multiple of five. We can't. We can't plug uh, the Patreon here. It was very, very small. <laughs> it wasn't really just a, plug. a tiny plug. A plugette. Uh, we dislike terraforming Mars. Well, I dislike terraforming Mars. Walker has his misgivings, but still enjoy it. And there have have I tried the app? No, I haven't tried the app. Well, I, I like the app for everything that this guy has talked about. Solo. Playing it by yourself. Quickly throw in some, you know, AI opponents. Blast through a game and just minutes it's not terrible yeah i just it just doesn't do anything for me i just again when this this is one reason why not a reason to go into the deep dive but having been through been in the hobby for over 20 years and i've been playing tableau builders many of them by tom layman for this period and terraforming mars comes up i'm like other than theme which is not nothing the yeah theme? that's what, well that's what i was going to counter with it's yeah a, it's the theme that 100 yeah, yeah. we reviewed terraforming mars i think it was episode three or something and i at the time i acknowledged look it's it's a hard sci-fi theme sort of a near future with plausible technologies and that's a tremendous amount of the appeal so good on them for that but other than that, I don't really see any reason to prefer it over, you know, take your pick, 51st 50 State Master Set, especially Race to the Galaxy. You know, there are many. Anyway. 
What does Mark find compelling about the Napoleonics period of history? Part of it is because I had a very, very influential history teacher named Roman Yaramowicz who who uh, gave me a love of Napoleonics. He he was a, a big fan of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, part of it is, honestly, as a pacifist, I appreciate its absurdity. Not to minimize the human toll that took place, but you're talking about, you know, a couple hundred thousand men dressed in beautiful uniforms that would line up opposed to each other on a field and very, you know, in a very civilized way, murder each other. Part of that I kind of appreciate. <laughs> I also really like the combined arms that was involved. It was the la- kind of the last gasp of uh, heavy infantry in a very serious way. You know, there's a, there, there's a number of things that you see kind of almost for the last time in that era. I find just all history compelling. I love playing almost all history games. Tell us about the dinosaur walkers. Nope. What solo games are you finding hitting? What solo games are you finding hitting the table in the last couple months? I've been playing a lot of uh, Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. Honestly, the solo mode is really good, and it it's not super quick, but it's sufficiently quick, and you just get to play with all the cards. I've also been playing Friedman Freeze's Finished, and a whole lot of Street Masters. Yeah, nothing's the actual table. How about the screen? Did a lot of fairy tale, a lot of a lot of fantasy realms. For things that are actually hitting the table, I've been pulling out Dice Miner once in a while because it's very quick to play. But something that's going to be hitting the table a lot more will be Spire's End coming up. Is there a game that you've been longing to play but haven't had the opportunity or the right situation? Oh, so many. We've already talked about the War Room, and we've already talked about Level Level 7 Invasion. Those are the two that I have here. I really want to play Westphalia by Amabel Holland. Uh, When there was some possibility of getting six people together and one of them was Walker, Walker said, you can can go ahead and play Westphalia. I'm going to be somewhere else. Makes me sad. Makes me deeply, deeply sad. And and again, I talked about this on the newsletter Oath and Sleeping Gods. We have copies. We just never came together. We were never really able to get groups or, or the, the, the time together for a push. So there's that. Do you do house rules? If so, are there any you consider mandatory? Would you make up a house rule for a game you like one and one for a game you dislike spontaneously ask <laughs> listeners to try them? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. No, uh, but there are some, we talked about this. This was one of our early topics actually. And we both expressed the view that house rules, there's a very high bar for them. You need to have a very serious problem to address the house rule. I know some people that house rule games all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes simple fixes like if there's going to be a face-up market, just always have a bigger face-up market on the basis that that's advantageous. Or some people just start fiddling with games when they're before they've even finished the first play. These people are barbarians. Uh, but I do have a house rule for Tribune, which is my favorite worker placement game. Don't start with any leaders. And uh, I have a minor house rule for Asgard's Chosen, which is somewhat similar. Nobody can start with a um, a strength four monster. Any time where you can just start out with random goods that have serious knock-on effects for the rest of the game, uh, I find that a little bit disadvantageous. And it's like, well, you know, in the first round, I was able to do these five amazing things just because I happened to set up in this way randomly. Nah, not a fan. No, I remember having house rules, but now having... This was like 20 years ago, and now having been much heavier in board games realize that those house rules are silly and foolish (laughs) well that is going to do it for this round of questions there are yet more questions to be answered and if you want more well just send them in and we'll consider them thank you very much for joining us for this special episode of so wrong about games 
Join us at our guild on Board Game Geek, which is guild number 3236. Check out our Patreon page and our Twitch feed. You can find us also on Facebook. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Proof that you listen to me. Wow. How was that? Well, actually, we won't necessarily see the next week. We don't know when the next oh, episode is going to be. Oh, sorry. I messed up the very end. I'm so sorry. I <laughs> Fumbled I, at the five-yard line. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, and we will see you again soon. And then you're supposed to say peace. No, that's not how this works. Oh, but I said, okay. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.